When I was just eight years old, I had to testify in court against my paternal grandfather for sexual assault. I remember walking through the courtroom to the witness box and seeing my grandpa's cowboy hat on the table where he sat with his two high-powered attorneys. There was the clock on the wall that I stared at while I answered questions that no eight-year-old should ever have to answer. I still recall the disappointing outcome of him being found not guilty. My name is Kelly Wallace. I am a writer and sexual assault survivor. I've undergone decades of therapy to overcome what I experienced, and writing is a part of my healing process. In this podcast, we will talk with other writers who have also overcome sexual violence. Their stories are often neglected, but to me, they are an inspiration, and I'm excited to be able to share them with you. Welcome to Recognize Our Power. The topics we are discussing are sensitive and do come with a trigger warning. Please take care of yourself. If you are in need of resources, please visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com, and click on the resources page. My first girlfriend decided that she wanted to be a writer and she encouraged me. She was like, you know, you should write for money. And then we, in our relationship, there was unfortunately, it was a very toxic relationship and there was a lot of competition between the two of us. And uh, a lot of the times she took the wind out of my sails whenever I would have an accomplishment. So I started writing purely out of spite and then ended up loving it and rolled with it. Welcome to the Recognize Our Power podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. Thank you for listening and subscribing. I'm so grateful to be speaking to our guest today, Deidre Olson. She is a Canadian award-nominated writer based in Berlin. Deidre's writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Cut, NBC News, Salon, Vice, McLean's, Shondaland, Narratively, and more than 50 other publications. I'm excited to have Deidre on today because she's the only other person I've ever met who has testified against her perpetrator, like myself, in open court. I feel like we hear lots of stories about workplace-based sexual assault from adults, but there are so few stories like ours out in the world where we were children and had to do the unthinkable. Can you share for our audience a little bit about your life prior to your assault? Honestly, I don't remember much. Uh, most of my memories involve the assault, unfortunately. Mm. Um, I can tell you maybe a little bit about like what my family was doing at the time. We were um, living in northern British Columbia, technically halfway up the province, halfway to the Yukon. That's still a 12-hour drive from Vancouver. My parents were working class and uh, working in the trades. My mother for the Canadian Pacific Railway Company and my father as a carpenter and they moved north in order to save enough money to eventually move back south to the suburbs of Vancouver to buy a house. So we were living in a largest city in the north and near my dad's family 
who lived next door to the perpetrator of my assault at age three. Can you share for us a little bit about the circumstances around what happened when it was reported? What what action did your was taken? Absolutely. Um, so we lived around the corner from my father's family, and next door lived a teenage girl. And she put a a flyer into their mailbox advertising her availability as a babysitter. And my dad's cousin's wife knew that my mother was looking for a for a babysitter, so passed the flyer along to her because my parents would be away a lot of the time. My mother on long haul trips, my dad away at work camp, so they definitely need a babysitter for my younger brother and I. And my mother was pregnant with my little sister. So we only ended up seeing the babysitter a number of times. Unfortunately, one of, or I don't, I mean, it's, I don't necessarily remember. It could have been more than once, but at least once. Unfortunately, the babysitter raped me, and I, when my mother was giving me a bath, she noticed something was wrong, and I ended up communicating that the babysitter had done it. And this was 1994. And this was a time when it was very scarce that somebody would pursue justice for sexual violence of, of a child. But my mother did it. And she took me to a doctor and the doctor's medical findings were consistent with sexual assault and penetration. And then, unfortunately, my father was deemed a suspect by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police so unfortunately, he couldn't be involved much in the ensuing investigation into what happened. So it was pretty much left on the shoulders of my mother. And she was 34 years old and pregnant with her third child. And she had two little kids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And she had to go through all of this by herself. Yes, yeah, so the, the day came. The, the, police, the police were supportive. She had the medical findings. And then the day came when they would ultimately determine if things would go forward. And they showed up. And my dad, unfortunately, was not allowed into the courtroom because, again, he was being treated as a suspect. So that was pretty devastating for them. So she had to go in alone. And she walked into the courtroom and saw that the entire evangelical church that the family of my babysitter belonged to was there to intimidate her. So she walked in, and uh, I don't have much memory of this. I have a memory of my mother putting me into a witness stand, but the room was empty and feeling terrified of the microphone looming over my head. Mm -hmm. Um, Both my parents were being there. I don't know if that's a dream or if it actually happened. I've sort of recreated everything based on records that I obtained through Freedom of Information requests to the RCMP alongside interviews with my loved ones and my own kind of memories, fractured memories. Mm. But from from what I gather has happened, I'm still trying to gather more information as I kind of research this historical event that happened to me. Mm. But I was called to speak to the judge. And he he asked me to tell what happened. And according to my mom, I, I called the judge a liar, because previously he had said that I wouldn't have to speak. And so my dad says that when he found this out, he was very proud of me because he was proud that even at such a young age, I stood up for myself and I said, no, you're a liar. 
you said I didn't have to talk, something along those lines. Unfortunately, from that day, the investigation crumbled because the doctor recanted her medical findings to the shock of my parents and the police. And so it did not proceed after that day. And that was sort of the end of it. Wow. Wow. What an injustice. What a huge injustice. What happened to the the perpetrator after? Were they let go? Yes, uh, she was 17. I think things Mm -hmm. would I think things would have been different if she was 18, but she was 17. And as far as I know, they left the city. The city is called Prince George. Mm -hmm. As I said, it's it's maybe maybe a little bit less. Maybe it's a nine, maybe it's a nine, 10 hour drive from Vancouver north. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, they they moved to the province over to Edmonton. My mother had heard previously that they moved to the other side of Canada. All, all we know is that they left for a while. Mm-hmm. But eventually my family moved back south a few years later. But eventually they moved back. I don't know if the daughter moved back, but they, but the family actually still lives in the house. Next door to my dad's cousin, they actually still live there. But they wow. left for a while and came back. I guess to uh, let things, you know, boil over. Wow. But ultimately but- there was never any justice after that but how and i i struggle with the use of this word brave because people have said i've i'm so brave how brave of you at such a young age to stand strong in that conviction of standing up to that a judge at three years old that is just wow and so after after all of this happened what was your your life like? Did you get any any counseling or any help around this issue? As far as I know, um, there is something. It's some. It's called, I believe, the work. It's like not workers. Um, victims compensation. As far as I know, that there was a bit of counseling after the fact, but that was pretty much it. A couple years later, my sister was born in that city, and then my parents finally had the means to move back to the suburbs. So we moved to a town outside of Vancouver called Ladner. And unfortunately, I had another instance of sexual violence. I I was very excited to come south because I thought that, you know, this, this home, this city, this community that had filled my nights with nightmares that I was escaping it and that we would finally be happy. And it was kind of, you know, turning over a page after a period of real horror. My mother is also a a victim of sexual violence who was raped by her own uncle. So this was definitely something that was also compounded her own grief. And she had my great grandmother tell her, no, that's not what happened. You were playing doctor. So I know that this was a really difficult thing for her. She didn't, she wanted to save her children from not experiencing the same pain, but unfortunately mm. forces beyond her had other plans. So we moved to this small community and I started spending t- more time with my cousins here, but unfortunately um, two of my cousins molested me and um, this compounded the grief that had come south with me and having seen the newfound joy of my parents, I didn't want to upset that, and so I decided to keep it to myself and not speak up. And as well, the mother of these boys walked in once when we were playing Truth or Dare, and she told me 
never to play the game again and not to say anything. And so that kind of also reinforced and cemented that I should keep my mouth shut. So I didn't end up, I told my siblings when I was a teenager and I told my parents in my early 20s. Um, and I, I'm still confident that those cousins that did that to me, I think somebody was molesting them and they were imitating Mm-hmm. because I have thought of every scenario, you know, was it young boys with a porn addiction or God knows what else. But I mean, this was a time when there was dial-up internet, if even. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it, 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 it had to be, I mean, yeah, I just feel like somebody was, they were imitating someone doing it to them or they witnessed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hold compassion for them. I tried reaching out to them a couple of years ago to, I finally got the guts to reach out and be like, hey, can we talk about this? One didn't answer me and the other said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't want to talk on the phone. So it's unfortunate mm-hmm. as far as my extended relatives are concerned. I'm a slanderer, um, which is fine. I can live with that. But it's uh, it's unfortunate. And uh, I, I, again, have compassion for them. But I, I, unfortunately, it really compounded that trauma and led me to having pretty severe childhood depression. Yes. It's, I mean, unfortunately, so often the case, there's, there's a family history of, of sexual abuse that's going on. And the, the answer is let's point the, the victim, the finger at the person who's making the accusations and it's their fault. We're going to ignore it. Um, let's look the other way. What was life like for you? In high school, did that? Did anyone in your high school or in your college know about any of these accusations or anything like that? I kind of really didn't understand what had happened to me as a child until I was in my twenties. I, 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 this other thing kind of compounded it, but then I kind of blocked it out, and then I just turned towards self neglect to cope. So. And and then when people saw how depression manifested, they just would call me a strange kid or a weird kid as though it was something innate. And that's what I believed. And that further cemented that narrative because I was a little kid. And I mean, with my cousins, that happened when I was about, I think, seven, six, mm-hmm. seven, eight, around then. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on, um, self-neglect looked like not brushing my teeth for weeks on end, sleeping in a bed with no sheets wearing the same clothes over and over, not showering for weeks, Mm. Um, having a bedroom, you know, with so much chaos, it was a foot high with moldy dishes, um, Mm. you know, hidden in a corner. It was, and, and this, and this bedroom, it was an extension of myself. It was a protective Mm. layer to keep people away from me to keep myself safe. It was the manifestation of my pain. But even when that was a kind of a physical call for help, people still didn't understand and still kind of blamed me for it as though you're just a weird kid because there was not really any discussion of mental health and things like that in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And for my parents, they, they tried to intervene, but whenever they would clean my room or this and that, then I was very, very stubborn about retaining it because it was kind of the way that I could take back control over my body and my life after having that autonomy robbed from me, having that agency robbed from me. So this was the way that I could be in control and I could could decide who gets to hurt me, me, I get to hurt myself the most. And Mm. that was how I could regain that agency. And so this, this kind of perpetuated into 
te- my teenage years, unfortunately, self-neglect turned to substance abuse. And when I was 15 years old, I was very hypersexual because I believed the only way that I could be loved was through sex. And, and I thought sex was something that happened to me, not something that I participated in and could enjoy. Mm. So... And as a teenager, it manifested in, you know, being 15 years old and having sex with boys, even though deep down I knew I was gay from an early age, but I had no recollection of knowing that until I was 18 years old. It was doing ecstasy when I was 15 years old, drinking, binge drinking, passing out in random places, ending up in really scary situations, which I am thankful that I survived. And this this substance abuse stayed with me until recently stayed with me. And I finally quit drinking three years ago at age 28, but it basically turned to some pretty severe drug and alcohol and sex habits, which again, people just tell you that that you're a bad kid and there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And the, these are your coping mechanisms, the, the self neglect, that the alcoholism, the drug use, sex, it's all, yeah, it's all intertwined. And people, I think in our society, just don't, they don't see it. They're just not familiar with it. And they don't know, again, how to respond. So I know you mentioned you went to college and you, at around 21, you seem to maybe have more of a sense of agency over what was happening to you. Were there any resources available to you? Like, like therapy or support groups or anything like that, that you connected with over that period of time? The So the kind of inciting incident to even realize that this stuff happened to me as a kid was uh, when I was raped, when I was passed out on a couch at a party when I was 20 years old. And it kind of broke the dam with everything that had happened to me as a child and resurfaced all of the memories about everything that had happened and then I fell into a severe depression. Prior to that, I, I had no conception that I had depression or anxiety or any kind of mental illness. I didn't even really understand what mental illness was. And I was at the University of British Columbia doing my bachelor's degree. And it was two years after I'd been raped. And then suddenly I just couldn't hold on anymore. And I was barely mm. passing my classes. And I was on, on campus trying to get support. But in order to have accommodation to have an extension on my paper or to do an exam in a quiet room, I had to have a formal diagnosis. And I went to the counseling services and they said I was too far into my degree. It was going to take too long. They couldn't give me a diagnosis. Maybe it was because I was a vegetarian and my B12 and iron was too low. So that was a shut door. Even after I had spilled my heart out to the counseling services, I went to uh, my professor's as a as a last resort and one of my professors who had previously been the dean of sociology and was a feminist lesbian professor i went to her office hours as a last resort and i will never forget because she showed up late with starbucks in hand laughing with another student as i was about to crumple in front of her door and we went finally we went in after i'd been waiting for her and she prodded me and prodded me and prodded me and prodded me and until i had to disclose that i had been raped and i was not doing well And then she told me as a fourth year student, I should know how to mitigate my mental illness. And that made me, I left and I had to go home and I crumpled into a ball. It just destroyed. I I had Mm. finally realized what had happened to me and I was finally trying to get support and I was just trying to pass my last year of school and my 
professor basically made me feel like I was lying for a week extension and I had no support that I, and to this day I can hardly walk on that campus because it was so re-traumatizing. Mm. So then a few years later, I moved to Toronto by myself because I needed to um, escape Vancouver because I was doing too many drugs. And once I was in Toronto and kind of by myself and on my own terms, finally, I started pursuing therapy and I was prescribed antidepressants. But I had pretty negative experiences because I was on a wait list for 13 months for an LGBT counseling program. It's extremely expensive. My health care didn't cover it. I took antidepressants for three years, but those ended up being, I ended up having a negative experience with antidepressants. They caused me to gain, rapidly gain weight. I gained 80 pounds in six months. I lost my ability to come. I lost my ability to cry. I turned from drugs towards alcohol and I ended up being a blackout drunk and and the things even got worse. And it took until I quit antidepressants and uh, quit drinking the same week and then finally had the money to pay for a therapist when I won a grant to write my book and spent a year in therapy was the first time I actually finally got help as well the same around the same time the same year I went to the mental health emergency room in Toronto for the first time and I received a BPD diagnosis and that made a huge huge difference because finally I had a diagnosis that fully encapsulated the way I felt because before I had a major depressive disorder or diagnosis and that just, I don't know, it, it felt like every single time I, I asked for help, every time I, tr- I tried to seek something out for the most part, I had doors slammed in my face, I was belittled, I was told I'm lying, it wasn't that bad, I'm not mentally ill, there's no help here, you're gonna have to wait, we mm. don't have the resources. It, t- it really, really took until I was... 28, I quit drinking and antidepressants. 29, I got my BPD diagnosis. And then later that that year, this was 2020, um, I moved to Berlin because, again, I had to get away from Toronto this time. Mm. I have a tendency of moving to run away. But finally, in Berlin, I shortly after moving there, found out I won a grant to write my memoir. And that gave me a bit of extra money to actually pay for therapy. And so finally, for the first time in my life, I have have some semblance of mental health and understanding of yeah the past. You're listening to Recognize Our Power. I'm Kelly Wallace. My guest is Deidre Olson. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Kelly Wallace, and this is Recognize Our Power. I'm talking with Deidre Olson. Can you explain a little bit for for our listeners who may not be familiar what borderline personality disorder is and and how it shows up in in your life? Absolutely. Um, So something that I was always told as a child is that I was neurotic and obsessive and compulsive and impulsive. Um, And these are things that I now realize are components of borderline personality disorder. So it's that you basically, you can't regulate your emotions and you have extreme responses to things. And some of the symptoms of it are poor interpersonal relationships, substance abuse, troubles managing emotions, 
a fractured sense of self, a loss of identity. And these were all things that I had throughout my entire life. And a lot of people who experience abuse or violence in childhood, whether sexual, physical, emotional, psychological, often end up with BPD. And it was just something that major depressive disorder just couldn't fully encapsulate mm-hmm. these specific experiences like this. You know, I, I looked up I looked up self-destruction in like Wikipedia and borderline personality disorder and schizophrenia are two that are tied to this. And it's like this mm-hmm. never ending desire to just want to just destroy yourself by any means necessary because you're in so much pain. It's a, you have a compulsion to destroy yourself, whether it's through reckless spending or alcohol or drugs or mm-hmm. sex. It's just this desire to hurt yourself mm-hmm. and to kill yourself slowly. Mm-hmm. When you got that diagnosis, was it, was it more helpful or harmful? Do you think? Did it answer any questions about who you were as a person? Yeah, it was like finally I had answers. I I, I think it was honestly really a really life-changing diagnosis because I finally at least had a script to understand myself and reading it because chronic depression, I wasn't chronically depressed. I When I quit Mm -hmm. drinking, a lot of the symptoms of depression that I had were actually from alcohol. Mm-hmm. And those went away once I stopped drinking. I Then I was pretty okay, but I still had the extreme emotions. And so it was more than just being chronically depressed. It was, it was being this ticking time bomb that is just waiting to go off all the time. And so BPD mm-hmm. gave me a script to better understand myself and to look back, you know, in the process of writing my memoir, which mm-hmm. I'm still structuring, but I'm thinking is going to be kind of like a detective novel of knowing something terrible happened to you, but not understanding what it was because it was so buried and trying to find mm-hmm. information and to construct a narrative about your own life and why you are the way you are and why people think that you are. Why do people call me a strange kid? Why? Why do people think that I'm this neurotic and obsessive? Well, there's there's a reason for that. And so BPD mm. gave me at least a, a script, an understanding. It gave me, it, it allowed me to connect some things together that I had never been able to before. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit about the grant that you received to start writing your memoir and how that whole process came about for you? Absolutely. Um so when I applied for it, I had I had never applied for a grant before, but I told myself in 2020 that I was going to try to start applying for things. I was going to embrace rejection. I was going to at least see what happened. And at that point, I had been writing for four years. So I had a few great, fantastic bylines under my belt. At that point, I had written for uh, McLean's and The Cut and... Um, it started it started with the binders, the Facebook groups. I, I wrote a single line because I, I had this epiphany one day where I was like, you know, self-neglect is a form of self-control. And I had this epiphany and I wrote it in a comment in the binders. And someone's like, I was like, I want to write about this, but I, I don't know how. And someone was like, oh, this, this is this, even just a sentence helped me. You should absolutely write about this. I recommend the cut. And I was like, oh, well, the cut's never going to take me. But I emailed them and... I I followed up after a month and they commissioned it and I wrote an essay for them and uh, it was very, very well received. And someone messaged me and they were like, I've never heard somebody put it this way. I've never read this before. Like you should really write a book. And I, and I was like, Oh, really me write a book. So it kind of like other people encouraged me. And so at this point I had written about it a few times and I was like, 
okay, well, you know what, I will apply to the Canada Council for the Arts. I'll just push myself. The day came, the deadline. I was like, oh, that's not going to happen. But I was like, just try to see what happens. I submitted it a minute before the deadline. And then five minutes later, I had forgotten about it completely again, because I figured there's no way in hell it's ever going to happen. And I got this email and it said your status updated. And I checked and this was about, I had been in Berlin for a month. And I checked and it was like, congratulations, your application was successful. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> and I looked and it was like, yes, we're going to fund you for a year to to work on your book. And I and I, I was shocked that somebody saw, you know, the judges saw value in it. So it's kind of been through like the encouragement of other people led me towards this. And uh, I was supposed to have finished the book within a year. Uh, I got about 20% done because it ended up being a lot more re-traumatizing than I could have ever anticipated. Memoir mm -hmm. is is a lot more challenging than mm -hmm. essay writing, just the, the level of detail. But I ended up using the money to go to therapy. And now I'm, I'm like the most psychologically healthy I've ever been in my life. So I feel like a lot of the process was, was getting healthy and taking a year of, off of working to just focus on healing and working through mm -hmm. it. I did go on a... Uh, my first art artist residency where I doubled the word count all at once. And now I'm looking to return to it. Um, yeah. That's an amazing, that's an amazing story. And how were you kind of going back a little bit? Were you interested in reading and writing as a teenager? How did you decide that this was something that you wanted to do in your life? I always loved writing as a teenager. I never thought that I could make a career out of it. I went to university and I did the safe thing, which was to study political science because I thought that was the safest artist, arts degree. And after I graduated, I was figuring out what I wanted to do. And my first girlfriend decided that she wanted to be a writer. And we had a pretty horrific breakup. And she had been encouraging me. She had started writing and she encouraged me. Because I think I had written something, I don't know, on Medium or something. And she was like, you know, you should write for money. And then we broke up. And then I was irritated. And so I started writing out of spite because I wanted to best her. <laughs> so I would say that my writing career, my, I would say that my writing career started, started out of spite. Because I was angry at this person because they broke my heart. And I wanted to best them because in our relationship, there was unfortunately, it was a very toxic relationship and there was a lot of competition between the two of us. And uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the times it, she took the wind out of my sails whenever I would have an accomplishment. So mm -hmm. I started writing purely out of spite and then ended up loving it and rolled with it. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, I know you mentioned that you're about 20% of the way done. With, with the with the memoir, can you talk a little bit? I know you said it, and it is is incredibly challenging as a as a memoirist myself to go back and write through those memories, and it it requires so much stamina, long breaks. I mean, I'm I'm 12 years in, and I'm just now finishing. I thought it was going to take me three years, and I was like five years, and I was like, okay, I guess. I had to take entire years off. Has your process looked like that a little bit? Or what's your process been like? So I would say that I've been working on it because I think it's not even just the writing. It's, it's the insane research that it takes. I mean, 
I had to file these freedom of information requests to the province of British Columbia and to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I've got a hundred page, one, one PDF, I think it's like 25 pages and another one that's 75 pages of like interviews with the police from when I was three years old and like the medical findings and the social worker records and the police records and that I got in 2018. I wrote the the essay for the cut in 2017. That's when I started even thinking about it. I feel like just even the remembering was part of it. And that started in 2011, the remembering. Then it was the essay in 2017. And then I, and then I started actually looking for physical information. So even the essay I wrote for the cut, part of it is because I got the information later like I thought the babysitter was 13 and I thought that I was four so even in the essay it has the wrong information because I ended up actually getting more information later so then I got these medical records and I finally was able to interview my parents then I interviewed uh, my dad's family I even was able to get the name of the perpetrator and I even found her Facebook I found the Facebook of the doctor Mm. I even reached out to the doctor to try and interview her and she blocked me the doctor that recanted her evidence so I think a lot of it is actually just like the remembering and the research and and actually the healing so I would actually say uh, it's been on my mind since 2011 but I would say since 2017 is is how long I've been working on it but the actual writing started in 2020 Mm -hmm. I'm still I'm still finding bits and pieces of evidence but I had to take a big break in 2020 because I had just moved to a new country and I was facing housing insecurity. It was the pandemic. I really needed to do actual therapy. I needed to really, really be sober uh, for a while. And now I'm, I'm finally in a place where I'm starting. I'm, I'm planning to return to it. I'm, I've signed up for a writing class. I'm hoping to join another residency at some point in the new year because I, I feel so psychologically well. I have a great support system. I'm finally settled in in my new city. So I finally feel like I'm in a healthy place to return to it because last time I was not in a healthy place and it really just, I had a terrible depressive episode with lockdown and housing insecurity. It was not a good, it was not a good time to try and write a memoir about sexual violence. So I've written some essays too over the last year to try and, you know, tie them to the book. I'm trying to write a a proposal, but I, this is the most difficult thing I have ever done in my entire life. It's the most difficult project. I don't think that anything, it's like performing an exorcism on yourself is how I often put it. It's true. And, and just going back and rereading court documents can be re-traumatizing, rereading my own testimony. I am like a zombie after reading that material. It's just, it's, there's just no way to really describe what it's like to sift through that material. And I think it's fantastic that you've been able to go and write some essays. You probably have a whole other collection, another book, (laughs) while you have to go off and write other things, which is, is fantastic. So tell us a little bit about like what your life is like now living in Berlin. I know you mentioned that this is the healthiest you've been in in your entire life what's what's life like now yeah so i moved to berlin the it was the second that the doors to europe opened again and canada was one of like seven or eight epidemiologically safe countries and i bought a plane ticket before 
Europe had even officially opened its borders because I knew that Canada would be on the list. And I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. It's this country's <laughs> too expensive. I'm too unhappy. There's, there's not enough support. I, I was like, I, I need my soul needs something new. So my best friend and I moved and my dog to Berlin I had a pretty tough first year, but won this amazing grant. It gave me this feeling like I'm on the right path. I'm doing the right thing. For the first time in my life, I actually felt that way. I had the most self-growth I have ever experienced, uh, kind of being on my own and abroad. And I met the love of my life and we are engaged and uh, I'm in the healthiest relationship I have ever been in, which I didn't think was possible. I'm finally with somebody that actually soothes all of the symptoms of mental illness to the point that I don't even really have them anymore. And I have stable housing and a great support network in Berlin. I have been sober for almost three years to the point that I don't even care about alcohol anymore. So that always feels really, really great. Of course, the first year of sobriety is tough, but now I actually don't have FOMO anymore. <laughs> so I don't know, just just, just finally I was able to, to live on my own terms. I'm, I'm at a really, really great place in my career, um, having been writing for, for five years. I'm actually able to make enough money to live and I'm living in a city with a, with a much lower cost of living. So it's just the conditions are, are finally, I'm not in like on social assistance or chasing down a publication to pay me or in a terrible situationship or clinging to an abusive relationship. I, you know, finally I am in a place where I'm healthy and happy and loved and I feel in a great place to actually write this book and get it done. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. Um, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Deidre Olson or on Twitter at Deidre L. Olson. You can read more of my writing. My portfolio is on my website at www.deidreolson.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll link in the show notes to all your socials and to find out more about our podcast. Please follow us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, or visit our website, recognizeourpower.com. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends. If you have an extra few seconds, please leave us a review to help the algorithm. I'd like to thank my guest today. Be sure to check out our show notes and website, www.recognizeourpower.com. Follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. This podcast is produced by Three Wire Creative.